And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I can think of no one in public life who enjoys a good policy fight more than Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and for the last 20 years, New York Times op-ed columnist. And if you don't believe me, you should pick up his new book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future, in which he recounts past columns on an array of issues, including health care, the excesses of Wall Street, tax reform, social security, climate and the abuse of facts in our contemporary politics. I sat down with Krugman last week on his visit to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago to talk about all that and very current issues, including uh, the economic impact of the coronavirus. Here's that conversation. Paul Krugman, it's great to be with you. Great to have you here at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I was saying to you before we started that people know what you think because they get to read about it all the time. And you've written 20 noted books, including your latest collection of columns, Arguing with Zombies, which we'll talk about. But they don't know that much about you. Uh, so I want to start there and move into okay. the other into the other stuff. Your family, you're originally from Belarus. Uh, my father's family was from Belarus. My mother's from Ukraine. So... Kind Standard. of classic, classic uh, Eastern European story. Jewish immigration story. Yeah. When did they come over? Um, 1920 on one side, 1914 on the other. So basically, just just before the United States slammed the the, the door yeah. shut on immigration. Now my dad came in a few years after that from Ukraine, so we share that story. How does that family lore? Does it linger with you? Did it was it something that was talked about in your house? And- I think so. There's this kind of sense of America as the you know land of opportunity and but the importance of the public systems that made that possible. I mean, I sit right now at the at a center at the City University, and yeah. the director of the center and I are City both New, of New York. City University City, of New yeah, York. Yeah. And the director of the center and 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 I are both CUNY babies. Uh, mm-hmm. Her father went to City College, mine went to Brooklyn College, both parts of this great public university system that made you know, nearly free education available to successive generations of, of children of immigrants, and that's still not true. Uh, my classes now are, uh, you know, tend to be not one in five of my students is uh, the child of, of American-born parents. It's it's still this great engine of upward self, social mobility, which to me is what America is all about. The, yeah. the, the ethnicities change, the names change, but the, the story is remains the same. I don't want to leap ahead uh, in our discussion, but since we're here uh, on this issue of, of immigration, you know, there was a piece this week, I think in your newspaper, about the impact of the Trump programs on legal immigration, oh, yeah. that legal immigration has declined by 11% already this year, headed to maybe 30% decline. You speak to the, the sort of the nature of the country that was a beacon to your family, my family, but there are economic implications to this as well, are there not? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, immigrants, first of all, just in general, you know, people who migrate tend to be people who are have got get up and go i mean the world sends its best people and um and then of course uh, you know that's not the president's message i know 
but in fact, it, it is in fact the case, and it, and and the, um, it has always been the case. America is America in large part because we got the best people. I mean, the uh, um, our education system. How did America get the world's greatest university system? A lot of it was built on European immigrants, European refugees, and uh, and it was because America was willing to accept such people that we got to be you know, what we are. Um, and we should point out that some of the sort of epithets that are aimed at new immigrants today were very much aimed at immigrants in the era of my dad, your grandparents. Oh, so. if you go back to what people were writing in, in the 1910s, uh, you know, Italians were subhuman. Uh, they were, it was barely, uh, it, was, it was everything that you see now. They were criminal, they were subhuman. Mm-hmm. Uh, people from Southern Italy, people from Eastern Europe, they weren't, uh, they, didn't, they didn't belong here because they were just uh, fundamentally genetically inferior. And no, it, it's, it's the same thing. Have you uh, thought about what it is that provokes these waves of anti-immigrant sentiment? That's always an interesting question because it's not, I think that's, it's always lurking there. I think there's probably always a quarter of the population that is prone to this kind of anti-immigration, anti-people who look different. And, of course, people, the classification of what difference means uh, changes. So uh, there was a time when the Irish were, mm-hmm. were, were an inferior race, right? So they just – but the um, – and I think it's mostly about elites. It's mostly about giving permission. So we had a pretty benign period for – a few generations, I think, after World War II, because we'd seen what bigotry could do. And it became unacceptable in elite discourse to to be openly racist, openly anti-Semitic. Um, and in general, you know, toleration became a, a value, and that, that kind of eroded. And now you have a lot of people with a lot of power who are giving signals that says um, hatred, bigotry are okay, and there's always a... Now, the, the the general population is not is actually, I think, more tolerant than it ever was. I mean, I, you know, my professional career goes back to the 70s, and um, I've looked at polling, and in the early 1980s, you know, during the Reagan's first term, only one white American in three thought that interracial marriage was okay. So we've become a vastly less racist country than we were, but there's still, there's always that possibility, and if powerful people give it a green light, then it, it comes out. You talked about these different waves. They're also accompanied by demographic change that threatens the incumbent classes, as it were. Well, we did slam the doors on immigration in 1920 yes. uh, or 1924, yeah. uh, and then um, didn't, and then sort of gradually reopened them uh, much, much later. So um, these, there's always that fear. Sure, uh, there's a when there are large numbers of people who look different, um, then there's always this fear that that somehow the character of the country will change. Although, again, after a, a couple of generations have gone by, for the most part, uh, those previously you know, subhuman, unacceptable groups become people like me. And then so it's the next group that you turn mm-hmm. it against, uh, with a few differences. The, one of the things, if I can say this, uh, um, there's a... Uh, um, one group that is always somehow never quite part of us is Jews, and uh, and that's why uh, I think Jewish Americans are are far more liberal than you would expect given their incomes because 
If you're like me, if you have any sense of history, any family stories, you know that that when once bigotry starts to run wild, you're always next in line. I'm staring at your book cover. Most book covers say Pulitzer Prize winning author or New York Times bestselling author. Yours says winner of the Nobel Prize, which is a pretty gaudy thing to be able to put on one's book. But since I have a Nobel Prize winner in economics sitting across me, let me just go back to the question of the economic impact on the country in the long run of shutting down immigration. Yeah, so there's a a whole bunch of problems associated with an aging population, uh, a country with low fertility rates, which all advanced countries now have. And uh, so we depend upon immigration to keep uh, the working age population growing. Um, One is, how do you support the older people. Um, so the, the U.S. Uh, people sometimes say the U.S. government is, is is a giant insurance company with an army. You know, basically what we spend our, our money on is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Although most recipients of Medicaid are young, most of the money goes for people who are old because older people have more health problems. Um, so if you have a, if young workers coming from abroad are a crucial part of supporting the whole system, and then there's this subtler thing, uh, which is that. A growing working age population is really important as a driver of, of the economy. Uh, you want if if the population is growing, then businesses want to build new office parks, new factories. There's demand for housing. It kind of keeps things going, and when that growth slows down or or goes into reverse, then you have a persistent problem of just not enough investment spending to make use of people's savings. That's what happened to Japan starting in the 1990s, and it's not an accident that Japan is a country with a shrinking population. Uh, it's happening to Europe now, and that's because Europe's demography right now looks like Japan's demography 20 years ago, and it's starting to happen here. So uh, there turned out to be, in addition to just the question of who's going to pay for retirement of, of people uh, of my generation, there's the question of what's going to keep the economy's motor running. Um, we've got a jargon phrase, secular stagnation, which is one of those com- economics phrases that nobody knows what it means. But in fact, with, it's a, but secular stagnation has gone from being a, well, people used to say that could happen, but it can't really happen to, oh my God, it's happening to all of us now. Can you quantify what it means, what it could mean down the line for these sort of draconian prohibitions? The, the president would argue he wants to implement standards so that the people who come in are people who are self-sufficient, who are well-trained, who on the face of it can add to the economic vitality. The country points to the Canadians, for example. Yeah, the Canadians do have a point system and all of that, but the fact of the matter, that's not what's happening. What the Trump people are actually doing are they're just making it hard for anybody to come. I mean, we, uh, we lost one of our faculty members in the center I work at because his wife uh, was denied a, a green card, um, denied a ability to, to work in the United States. And this is a highly educated European woman. Mm-hmm. And they're just cracking down on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, if you actually look at some of the things that people like Stephen Miller have said, they're actually, in, in some ways, even more opposed to high-skilled people coming in. They don't, they don't like the idea that, that Asians are coming in and starting companies in Silicon Valley. It should be Americans doing it, even though, of course, they're the reason... You know, we, we don't, that, that's not, there's not a, f- a fixed number of slots there. No, the other I mean, theory is that it makes sense to draw people here and have them become Americans and exactly. bring their productive capacity here. Yeah, and we, we 
Uh, so there, there are par- parts of it that you can quantify. I mean, Social Security, uh, the finances of Social Security are very sensitive to demographic projections. If you, re- if you reduce the expected growth rate of the working age population by uh, by a half percent, uh, Social Security finances look a lot worse heading forward. So right there you can see it. But there's a whole bunch of other things. I think basically um, if, if we are going to cut off half a percent from population growth, um, we're going to actually lower the actual growth of the economy by a lot more than half a percent. It's mm-hmm. really going to be a, a problem for our future. Let's return to your story. So your family made the other migration that's fairly customary for Jewish immigrant families from New York. You you moved to Long Island. Well, yep. Yeah. Absolutely standard story. Grew up in the... <laughs> I mean, I, I actually spent my very early years in upstate New York, but basically grew up on Long Island. So New York suburbs... Tell me what that was like. I read somewhere that you, one of your pastimes was going and looking at these old mansions that... Uh, oh, yeah. I used to... That was a, actually, it was a favorite bike trip because I was on the south shore of Long Island, which is you know, endless subdivisions. Uh, my friends and I would ride across the island from the south to the north shore, which is Great Gatsby territory. That's where all the grand old mansions are. But of course, at that time, Nobody actually, those weren't places where rich people lived. All those grand old mansions had been converted into nursing homes or museums or something because we were a middle-class society and nobody could afford to maintain a place like that anymore. And it was, so they were they were nice to visit and it was, it was kind of fun, but it was, uh, um, it was also something, uh, uh, they were relics of an era that wasn't going to come back until it did. You've written quite a bit about that period of time when you were growing up and that the sort of middle class boom between World War II and like the early 70s. Yeah. And rather than becoming sort of the template for the future, you describe it as kind of an interregnum between periods of great inequality. Yeah, we thought, a lot of people, economists thought, I think everybody thought that that middle class society was was the way the future was going to look. And it turns out that it wasn't, that uh, that it, it depended upon a bunch of s- specific things, strong unions, uh, um, a, a coalition of, of labor and, and uh, people of color and so on that, that made it possible to have uh, that kind of society. And now we're back to, uh, you know, we can argue about exactly what the numbers are, but we're basically back to something like the Gilded Age or uh, um, actually European economists, people like uh, Thomas Piketty call it, it's, it's like the Belle Epoque. Uh, we're not only back to an era of great fortunes, but increasingly of inherited great fortunes dominating society. It's That's not... That, that is what America sometimes has looked like, but it's not the America that I grew up in. I mean, we're sitting down, and no, and this is a podcast and not a television show, but I'm guessing you weren't the captain of the basketball team. <laughs> no. Uh, you've described yourself as kind of uh, a loner. And, yeah, and, I was a very nerdy, uh, very nerdy young guy. What was it that you did that sort of precursed what you were to become? Were you a writer then, or...? None, not particularly. I mean, what can I say? I was a, so the silly stuff first, I was a science fiction reader. And some of your listeners may know the classic foundation novels by Isaac Asimov, which are about how mathematical social scientists save galactic civilization. So that's what I wanted to be. And being an economist was as close as I could get. Uh, But also I did go to Yale. Um, 
Harvard turned me down, but I did go to Yale. And uh, <coughs> you got to let that go, Paul. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and um, and had the um, you know, just really good luck. I mean, I, I I found a mentor there, Bill Nordhaus, who himself won a Nobel, uh, and. Um, just had the really good luck to find my way into uh, really in the idea that economics could be really interesting and uh, got to go to MIT uh, for grad it, school. Was it the Asimov, were, were you envisioning yourself as this nerdy superhero? Maybe a little bit, uh, but also just uh, I actually found the stuff interesting and thought uh, that I was uh, turned out. I got... Got, I got some precocious work as a research assistant because I turned out to be pretty good at digging through vast piles of statistical publications and, and figuring out which numbers could actually be useful um, for for the for Bill who I was working for. Yeah, um, yeah, and then um, yeah, went off to grad school. I just when you say useful, what, what is it about economics that? How did you see it? What what did you see it as a vehicle to do? I mean, or was it just that there were in- intriguing problems that you could solve? I mean, did you see applications that were pragmatic? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, economics is. I mean, it it's got its own. It can be beautiful. That's hard to explain to somebody who doesn't really do it, right? It doesn't look like a beautiful field, but it can be. There there are beautiful ideas in economics, but also it's about society. It's a, um, If you think about, uh, look, we, uh, we had this thing called the Great Depression, and everything was in chaos and society was collapsing, and a lot of people thought that we needed a dictatorship to deal with it, and along comes John Maynard Keynes, who says, okay, here's how this thing can happen, and if you want to solve the problem, actually push this button. Right, uh, uh, government spending in a in a depressed economy is exactly what the doctor ordered, and he himself said that I, I that his purpose was not to destroy capitalism but to save it, and uh, that the fact that you can do that uh, actually one of the biography of of Keynes, uh, uh, classic biography, one of the volumes of it is called the Economist as Savior, and so there is something to that. It, this is this is a field that is intellectually interesting but has huge real-world applications. Yeah, I, I lived through a small bit of that uh, when we arrived in the White House in 2009. Oh. And uh, one of the most chilling meetings that I've ever attended was before we came here, and people who you know, Christy Romer and uh, and uh, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, and were briefing us uh, before the country really had fully gripped yeah. Where we were, and they said, and, and I remember Summers very distinctly. Remember Summers saying, "There's one in three chance of a second Great Depression." Yeah, and it's like you never kind of imagine that you'd hear that, you know, in two thousand and 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 eight, which is when we were late in that year. Actually, I yeah, I think I was more ready for that possibility than maybe even than Larry was. Larry and I have known each other for yes, our entire adult lives. But the uh, my guess is you guys have had some spirited conversations. Over yeah, this. although on most important things we end up agreeing. Yeah. Uh, and but the thing was, I I I my specialty has always been international economics, 
and lots of other countries have had crises. And so if you spend time, I used to call myself an ambulance chaser. I would go <laughs> off to you know crisis in Indonesia, crisis in Argentina. Um, having seen these things happen to other countries and understanding that there's nothing magical about being American that means that it can't happen here. Uh, I was not as shocked, I think, as a lot of people uh, were by the, the fact that it was, in fact, happening here, that we did, in fact, in fact, face that kind of risk. And you wrote a lot about uh, leading up to it, the housing bubble that yeah. ultimately uh, led to the crisis. The debate that you hear always is between those who argue that it was the government that provoked yeah. that, that the inclination during the Clinton years to uh, promote home ownership, particularly in minority communities, uh, was responsible and that Fannie and Freddie led the economy into this. There's a fair amount of evidence that that is not true. It's overwhelming. That's what I, when I talk about arguing with zombies, that's an example of a zombie idea. It's an idea that should have been killed by evidence. We Every piece of it you can refute. You can say, look, the the lending that really drove the housing bubble was not by Fannie and Freddie. It was not by banks that were covered by the Community Reinvestment Act. It was by more, you know, mortgage originators that were unregulated. It was unregulated lenders, uh, private sector lenders that were leading the housing bubble. Also, there was a housing bubble in Europe. Spain had a bigger housing bubble than we did. That wasn't liberal Democrats forcing Spanish banks to make bad loans. The housing bubble was clearly a case of a private sector overreach. And the fact that people are still repeating this doc, this claim, which of course is politically useful to the right, but it, that it just goes on despite being as thoroughly refuted as, as anything in economics ever can be. That's that's a, that's the zombie phenomenon. Here's a, a, a an undead idea that should be dead, but it it's just shambling along and eating people's brains. But it is a, an example of where underregulation can create a crisis. That's right. We went for. I mean, we've all seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and there's the bank run. Um, and in fact, at the time that movie was released, that couldn't have happened, because by the time that that movie was released, we already had banks that were protected by the FDIC. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing with Jimmy Stewart made great drama, because people had seen things like that during the 1930s, but it was no longer possible, thanks to FDR and the reforms that he put in. But we allowed those reforms that made banking safe to gradually erode. Partly, we deregulated the banks, but more importantly, we failed to regulate non-bank institutions that were basically banks. And so we had created this whole system of shadow banking that was basically the Wild West in terms of, of the financial risks, and eventually it came crashing down on us. The uh, You talked about uh, the Keynesian antidote to economic depressions and, and deep yeah. recessions, and the Obama team basically followed that playbook. You've been critical of, you thought that the stimulus that was enacted should have been larger. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, I was all in favor of the stimulus. Obviously, I, I was tearing my hair out because I thought it was, it was way underpowered, and that that would be a, a big political problem later on. Which I think it, uh, that that is how it turned out. Yeah, I mean, the the political problem in the moment was for reasons that were more optical than than logical. There were people who said, we'll go this far and not farther. And that was, and you had to pass the Recovery Act. So, Well, but that, we could go on. I mean, if they said, well, we need, we need to do it without invoking uh, uh, reconciliation, we need 60 senators. And, uh, you know, 
In 2017, Republicans rammed through a $2 trillion tax cut by using reconciliation. So um, it's it, the, the caution of the— Reconciliation would reduce the number needed Just to a majority. A majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so the, the fact that—I that, uh, mean, I, people in the your team uh, were not willing to stick their necks out far enough politically, and I think in the end it was a big mistake. But, you know, that's all water under the bridge. Yeah. It's interesting, though, you've written in here about your— your evolution in terms of understanding government and how some of the barriers there, you wrote about that particularly relative to health care, but it's complicated in a democracy to implement anything of substance on a large scale. It's counterintuitive to people in a financial crisis, in an economic crisis, that what you have to do is spend more money. Yeah, that the the temptation to use the analogy of a family. I mean, the, uh, John Boehner, uh, then Speaker of the House, said people are having to tighten their belts so the government should tighten its belt too. Right. And we all said, my God, that's stupid. That's right. the stupidest thing we've ever heard. And then that same line but started you know to what? show I mean, up. That would test very well, I think, with voters. We know it did because yeah. it started showing up in, in President Obama's speeches a few months later. Yeah. Um, and now, it, in practice, he didn't do that. In fact, uh, Obama did the right thing, just not enough of it. But the... Um, that's that is a problem. Uh, the economics of of dealing with a with a depressed economy is really strongly counterintuitive. It's one of those cases where what it, it, economics teaches and what the natural reaction of most people is are are just wrong. We we know this. I mean, in in the '30s, polls had people really concerned about the budget balance, and you know, FDR listened to them in 1937. Uh, with disastrous results. He, he did some fiscal austerity and kind of created a second leg to the Great Depression. Yeah, which was resolved by World War II, which became... That's right. Well, I, uh, at one point I wrote, I don't think it made it into the book, but the uh, I suggested we should invent a threat from space aliens uh, requiring us for some reason to build a lot of infrastructure to counter the space aliens. Because if, that, if that, anything that would get us spending enough to get out of that slump... Now we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You went to MIT, and you started working on what became known as new trade policy. There were certain assumptions about how trade worked that turned out to be wrong. Well, not wrong, but only half the truth. Uh, So, look, international trade is a lot like... um, Why why aren't we self-sufficient individuals? You know, why do people uh, do different things? Um, There's two reasons. One is that people are different. Temperament of, of of being a brain surgeon and the temperament of being a, a physical therapist are probably different. Uh, people have different aptitudes, and the other is that there are real advantages to specializing and doing enough of something that you can do it really well. And international trade theory, when I came into the field, only focused on differences between countries as a reason why they trade. It was all about uh, d- countries that have different climates, they have different resources, so they end up producing different things. Um, but once you thought about it a bit, you realized that there were there are also just advantages to specializing um, and that an awful lot of international trade is between countries that are very similar, 
but they end up producing different products because there are economies of scale. There are advantages to large-scale production. So that doesn't sound like a very radical insight, but it was something that somehow, you know, for technical reasons, had been left out of the analysis. And there was this movement, the new trade theory, that, that brought it back in. And it, uh, um, it's one of those things uh, which, before you say it, it, no one was saying it. And after you say it, and I've written down a few clever mathematical models, it's totally obvious. Yeah, but not so obvious that you didn't win the Nobel Prize for it. Well, this is that's nice to get. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where, by the way, were you expecting, I mean, did you know that that was a... No. Um, some people had tagged me as a likely winner before, and in fact, uh, there were rumors uh, some several years earlier that I was going to get it, and I didn't. And I managed to put it completely out of my mind. I know people who are waiting for that Nobel call, and they're, and it eats them, you know, eats them from the inside. So I paid no attention. When the call came, it was a complete surprise. In fact, when the call came, somebody with what sounded to me like an obviously fake Swedish accent uh, was on the other end of the phone. So I, I wasn't sure it was real until half an hour later when it was on their website. You, uh, uh, when you went to work for the New York Times, uh, one of your concerns was that you wouldn't be that you wouldn't be taken seriously as an economist because you were essentially in a more popular kind of uh, 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 format there. Um, yeah, I did have some friends who said, you know, this might uh, kill your chance of a Nobel Prize, uh, which turned out not to be true. But the um, and it. But on the other hand, look, I was um, uh, I started. I was forty seven years old when I started working for the Times, and the fact of the matter is that even the greatest economists, uh, even Paul Samuelson, the greatest American economist of basically the greatest American economist ever, didn't do a whole lot of original work after he was 50. Uh, there comes a point when it's time to do something different. And the Times offer came along at a good time for me to try something different. Let me ask you about your writing, because you've written a lot of very, very celebrated textbooks, among other books, and you write with great clarity. And you take these complex subjects and you write in ways that are make them understandable. Writing is not necessarily something that one associates with economists. It's a different sort of skill set. How did you become the writer that you are? A lot of the answer is I have no idea. Um, but I, I think a lot, one important thing is when you're writing is just to think about the reader. Who is this aimed at? What will that person understand? What language uh, will work, and how do I strip down a concept so that I can do it without jargon? Um, the uh, the biggest uh, we have great copy editors at the New York Times, and for me, I'm I'm apparently a low maintenance columnist. I come in at length with a, all of my facts verified and all of that. Uh, the most common thing is it turns out that without even meaning to, I've slipped into some economics jargon. I've used some words in ways that don't correspond to the way normal people talk, and they will call me on that and say, I didn't, you know, the readers won't get what you mean here. Uh, but it, it's mostly, and also practice, by the way. I started writing occasional pieces for a broader public very early, and, uh, and um, um, for the most part, they were terrible. <laughs> so it really, it took me a couple of decades to kind of get the style down. 
And your your wife, who's also an economist, Robin Wells, she she edits your pieces before you. Uh, less so now because we I've gotten the rhythm, but for very much so in in the early stages. And of course, she's the co-author of our of your uh, principles book. of economics textbook. Yeah. Uh, so that's a uh, uh, yeah that which is. Um, I guess we have a good marriage if we can survive that. <laughs> I would think so. In terms of your books, the first book you ever wrote was called The Age of Diminished Expectations, and you talked very much about this issue of income inequality, and that was 30 years ago. That's right. Yeah, that was my first trade book. I wrote a couple of incomprehensible economics monographs before that. <laughs> but the uh, um, No, I was on that bandwagon. I mean, in, in arguing with zombies, the... Um, the oldest piece in the book is a 1992, uh, which is actually a little bit after, so uh, uh, age diminished expectations, but it, uh, still, it was about inequality. Um, it was already obvious in the 80s that something was changing. So by the end of, of the Reagan administration, uh, those of us who were paying attention realized, first of all, that inequality was rising, and secondly, that it wasn't that well-educated people were doing well relative to less educated people, or it wasn't only that. There was also the 1% was pulling away from everybody else. Um, you know, uh, Wall Street, the movie, that's 1987. So everyone should have been aware of it even then. And Paul, how much of that is, is just a consequence of policy? And how much is it a, an economic uh, force? I have become increasingly convinced that it's policy much more than economics per se. That... Um, Yes, there's technological change and globalization and all that, but that doesn't explain why uh, um, why CEO pay went from 20 times that of the average worker to 300 times that of the average worker. That doesn't explain why truck drivers used to be well-paid and have seen a 30% fall in their real wages. All of that is about the collapse of unions, the empowerment, uh, uh, just a climate that made it much easier for people in positions of power to exploit that to make themselves richer. And um, it's just not, uh, it's not, it's not something that was faded by the by technology. It wasn't uh, computer chips didn't force us to become uh, the highly unequal society we now are. That was a lot of political decisions along the way. You were uh, briefly in the Council of Economic Advisors under the Reagan administration. How much did that? How much were the policies of Reagan, which really is a line of demarcation yeah. in sort of government as a force for social equity to government? depicted as as a, a, a kind of enemy of of social equity. So I was on the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors. I was the senior international economist, and not just sub-political. Yes. And uh, the senior domestic economist was Larry Summers. Uh, so and so th there were a couple of things I learned. I mean, one of them is, is having been had a very early experience of being inside the rooms. You know, I was the guy behind the table passing up little notes to my principal about something that, that he was, uh, told me to remind him to mention. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you, you get the, a much more cynical view of how, how decisions are actually made. You, knew, you know far more about that than I do, but, uh, but at least I got some inside uh, vision. Um, but no, it's clear. I, I don't think we fully realized at the time, and we knew that Reagan was, was changing things. But uh, it now, really, 1980 is a, is a turning point for a lot of stuff. I, I, there were probably deeper reasons why it was going to happen, Reagan or no Reagan, but, but it was clear that there was a real uh, 
sharp right turn in America that took place around then, and, and all of the trends have been uh, very much away from that middle-class society we used to have. And talk to me about the current president's economic policies. In terms of this, this challenge, which seems to be inflaming our politics yeah. uh, in a major way, and politics around the world, by the way, but the, the, the steps that he has taken in the three years that he's been president, what are the implications of that for uh, inequality? Well, everything he's done uh, has acted to increase inequality. He's attempted to, um, I mean, he had a tax cut that very much favors the rich once again, um, which has led to ballooning budget deficits, which will be used as an excuse to cut social programs. Um, he tried to repeal Obamacare, didn't manage to do that, but has done everything he can to sabotage it, basically trying to uh, erode away at, at programs that, that protect Americans' vulnerable people, Medicaid, food stamps. Uh, so it's all, it's, it, Trump's domestic economic agenda is basically, it's the same. It's, it's, the, it's the same old, same old Republican agenda, um, but he's pushing it even further to the right than, than we've been before. The, one of the zombie ideas that you talk about in the book is the classic one that if you cut taxes for people at the top and if you that yeah. that that will and and corporate taxes that that will result in rising tide lifting all boats yeah and that and that they'll even pay for themselves and no no idea has been as thoroughly tested as that one uh, we've had multiple rounds of tax cuts by republican presidents none of which delivered on their promises we've had tax increases both Bill Clinton in 1993 and actually Barack Obama in 2013 on the rich that were supposed to lead to disaster that didn't. We've had Kansas promising a miracle by cutting taxes and, and experiencing a disaster. And Jerry Brown's California raising taxes and Republicans calling it economic suicide and the state economy boomed. So this is something where at this point you really, nobody should give any credence to this stuff. And yet... You had just about every Republican in Congress saying, I believe that the Trump tax cut will pay for itself. You had you know, supposed moderates like Susan Collins saying that. So um, this, this, really, this zombie really has eaten the brains of everybody in the GOP. And in terms of the economy, you know, the econometric models for the next election all point to Trump getting reelected based on yeah. the, the, the state of the economy. And he has claimed a great deal of credit for the state of the economy, how much credit do you think he deserves? Okay. Um, the one thing you can say is that all through the Obama years, uh, fiscal austerity was a drag on growth. We were gradually, we, we, we were reducing deficits too fast, given the economy's still somewhat weak state, and, and given the fact that interest rates were as low as they could go. And so this was a really destructive thing, pretty much enforced by Republicans. Uh, when Trump came in, all of those Republicans who said that debt was an existential threat suddenly stopped caring about it at all, um, and the deficit ballooned, par partly, mostly the tax cut, but also some kinds of spending. You know, the bailout of the farmers is, is, uh, is substantially bigger than the auto bailout under Obama. Um, and um, in a way, 
the election of Trump brought an end to the economic sabotage that was holding back growth under Obama. The, the Obama economy did pretty well, but it could have done much better. I mean, I, I've actually tried to run the numbers. And if it hadn't been for that fiscal austerity, we would probably have been down to a 4% unemployment rate by 2014. So, you know, we, and so in a way, because Republicans stopped sabotaging the economy, we got some lift under Trump. Now, the Trump stimulus, uh, in effect, it's a, it's a pretty badly designed stimulus. It's giving money to rich people who don't spend very much of it. And it's giving money to corporations who aren't using it to invest. They're using it to buy back their own stock. Uh, so the bang per buck is pretty low, but it's a hell of a lot of bucks. And mm -hmm. so some of the economy's growth uh, can be attributed to this change of policy. Um, the tragedy, aside from the political side, is none of it is being used to improve the future. There's no infrastructure program. We're actually cutting back on programs that help children have adequate health care and nutrition. Um, the supposed burst in private investment has not happened. So it's it's a it's a huge waste of an opportunity. If you're going to say deficits don't matter anymore, then why not do something useful with the borrowing? Should people be concerned about debt? Not very. Uh, I find if I was going to make a list of the top ten problems facing America, public debt wouldn't be on them. I mean, it's uh, you know you, the numbers are huge, but everything involving America is huge. And if you actually ask. Um, how how big a burden is paying the interest on the debt? Uh, it's really actually it's really it's no burden at all because once you adjust for inflation, uh, the the interest rate on the debt is zero, and the U.S. economy is growing, which means that debt tends to erode as a share of the economy, uh, even with a budget deficit. If there's another economic downturn, though, is there a limiting nature to running up these huge deficits? Will you you know I just think about all the resistance we ran into because the in the Bush years, the deficits went up over a trillion dollars. We came in. There's a crisis. Our first move is to spend $887 billion. Yeah. And people said, well, you, you really can't do We can't afford that. Yeah, but it turns out we could. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of people were predicting that interest rates were going to soar. People like me said, no, they're not. Uh, basic economics says that in a depressed economy, government borrowing does not drive up interest rates, and it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, you look at countries... Um, countries that borrow in their own currency uh, and are perceived as having you know, reasonably competent, stable governments have enormous leeway. Japan has debt that's more than 200% of GDP, borrows very, very cheaply. Um, we're nowhere close to that. We have uh, a vast amount of running room before we would be anywhere close to Japanese debt levels. And so it's just not But there is some concerned. limit somewhere, you think? Probably, although it is hard to find it. I mean, it's, uh, it, I, 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 I cannot come up, people have been asking, can you come up with an example uh, of a country that, again, one that borrows in its own currency. It's very different if you're something like Argentina borrowing in dollars. Then, then, then problems can be can can crop up. But if you're borrowing in your own currency, um, I can't come up with any historical examples of countries that got into big trouble because of 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 debt. Let me ask you about healthcare. You've written quite a bit about right. it. Your book is divided into different subject areas that you've written right. on. You've written a lot about this. You're passionate on the subject. You were unhappy with Obama's healthcare proposal when he was a candidate. Right. Ultimately, you became a supporter of the Affordable Care Act, and you've charted its progress and all the efforts to dismantle it. 
where are we now? Um, so the people who put together uh, the Affordable Care Act were very, very smart. Uh, so, I mean, I, Obama ran against the individual mandate. Uh, and then when the proposal actually came through, he included it. So yeah. actually, the, the actual plan that got passed was Hillary Clinton's health care plan, it turns out, um, which was a smart plan. It was underpowered relative to what one would have wanted ideally, but it was the most we could get. And I, I respected that reality. And the people who put it together, especially Nancy Pelosi and, and the, the walks that, mm -hmm. that helped put it together, did it did a very smart thing, and among other things, they set it up so that it was more robust than even people like I thought it was going to be. So um, Trump and pe people did away with the individual mandate, and we all said, oh, this is going to be scary because people, healthy people will stop buying insurance and premiums will go up and you'll have a death spiral. But it turns out that because of the way the subsidies are structured, everybody under 400% of the poverty line is protected from premium increases. Um, so the death spiral just sort of got truncated. Um, now, it still made it worse. We, we would have a few million more people would have health insurance. And premiums, at least for some segment, uh, have gone up yeah. because of some of the actions the administration's taken. That's right. have written about that. And some of the states, by the way, have taken blue states, yeah. have undone the damage. So, so when New Jersey mm -hmm. reimposed a, a, a health insurance mandate, premiums dropped again. And uh, so that, in a way, the, the fact that state policies can undo some of that damage shows that Trump has done real damage. Nonetheless, the fact is that 20 million people who didn't have health insurance got it. Uh, and with a little bit more money and a, f f a further extension, we could probably get another 15 million. Yeah, and also there there are guarantees written into this law that protected people with pre-existing conditions. Tremendous. I I know. I mean, obviously, I come from. I live in a in a, a privileged uh, socioeconomic status environment, and even I know people whose lives were literally saved by Obamacare. Mm -hmm. People who had pre-existing conditions and are self-employed and wouldn't have had health insurance and something really serious happened, and they were insured, and it made all the difference in the world. The president says he wants to do away with the Affordable Care Act, but he, his plan will protect people with pre-existing conditions. You've written about that. Yeah, it's a, um, such blatant lying going on here. I mean, um, the, the Trump administration is participating in a lawsuit that's trying to um, um, get the entire ACA overthrown, and there, uh, I when I try to explain how Obamacare works, I usually start saying, suppose you want to protect people with pre-existing conditions. What things, other things do you have to do to make that work? And you go through the logic of that and you end up with Obamacare. It's uh, it, it's almost like, a, uh, almost like a mathematical theorem that you have to have um, something like a mandate or at least something to encourage people to, to buy into the system even if they're healthy. You have to have subsidies so that everybody can afford to have the insurance. You have to have regulation of the insurance companies so that they can't discriminate based on medical history. And that's all the, the components of the Affordable Care Act. There's a big debate in the Democratic Party right now yeah. about Medicare for all. You, you and you point out most progressive economists support the notion of Medicare for all, a single-payer system. It's become the focus of the debate yeah. on health care. Which I think is a big mistake. Uh, not because it's, it's a bad idea in itself. I mean, uh, although one of the things you learn if you 
every other advanced country has some form of universal health care. Some of them do it through single payer, but others do it through regulated private insurers. So you can, um, single payer is probably the cheaper way to do it, but you can do it different ways. Uh, the problem is the, if I wanted to go there, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, 160 million people have private health insurance. And you're going out there and saying to them, we're going to take away what you have now. We're going to give you something completely different. Trust us, it'll be better. And you're probably telling the truth, it will be better. But that's, you're asking people to put a lot of faith uh, in, in your plan. And, and, your, and in the government, which has been eroded over time. Yes, I mean, and, and people, of course, don't understand I mean, literally, there there were people carrying signs. Don't let the government get its hands on Medicare. Yes, right. Yeah. Every everybody and everybody over sixty five actually has single payer health care, but they don't know that necessarily. Um, and so it's a heavy political lift. And there's a whole lot of other things that I would like to do. So I think that spending heavy political capital on getting the ideal health care system is a mistake. But you know, if uh, if I'm wrong, if, if Bernie Sanders becomes president and can actually get the legislation through, fine. But I just don't think it's actually going to happen. Climate change is another thing that you've written about. And you've said that if there's one issue that concerns you more than any other uh, right now, it's that issue. And leaving the science aside for a second and the sort of existential nature of climate change, I want to ask you as an economist, what are the economic implications of climate change? Wow. I mean... Um, well, first of all, I mean, if the planet becomes largely unlivable, um, that does tend to hurt GDP. Uh, <laughs> among uh, other things. Among other things. Um, but even short of that, the, uh, we have a whole world economy that's based upon the climate that the Earth has now. And you can envision a, a world that is five degrees warmer, um, that uh, where everything moves north and, uh, and sea levels rise and everything moves inland. But getting from here to there would be enormously destructive. Um, and the, the really, in a way, the infuriating thing right now is that the economics of limiting climate change, the economics of, of drastically reducing emissions, now look easy. Technology is our friend. And the uh, renewable energy, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when solar power was hippy-dippy nonsense. Now it's... Now Trump administration is trying to force people to burn coal instead of go to cheaper solar energy, right? Uh, and uh, by the way, this has a lot to do. There's one of the things I don't think uh, many of us give enough credit to the Obama stimulus, the green energy portion of mm -hmm. it, did a lot to sort of jumpstart this mm -hmm. technological revolution in green energy. So at this point, we know how to do it. It wouldn't be very hard. There's overwhelming consensus, actually, even among economists that say we should have a carbon tax and use you know, government incentives to shift. So this is, this is something the, that's- The political implications of that are for those areas yeah. reliant uh, for industry and for employment on- so I'm, I'm energy sources. It, it is a threatening thing, which is, of course, what the president has worked very hard. And it's why I so I'm, I'm in favor of a Green New Deal. And the question is, what is nobody quite knows what that means, which I view as a great advantage. Uh, the Green New Deal can be a bunch of stuff. It can hang a whole bunch of it can include investments in coal country. It can include a whole bunch of uh, we kind of want a Christmas tree. You need uh, a grand bargain That's in order right. to make it politically palatable. We need something that, that offers payoffs to a, a 
bad word here, but offers no. benefits to as many people as possible. I mean, I as think we have to be sensitive the to the disruptive nature of change. That's right. In people's lives. That's right. Which is what, a reason not to be a purist. Which is a reason to look for a way to make it a bargain, to make it a package, so that there's lots of other good stuff. It, if it's a, 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 even though it's climate change is an existential threat, if you try to make it an eat your spinach policy. Um, it's not going to happen. So let's do lots of good stuff and put saving the planet as part of it. Yeah, and it would have that stim- stimulating effect that you've That's spoken right. of. The U.S. government can borrow, you know, on 1.5% interest rates long term, uh, spend that money on saving the planet. You know, we spoke earlier about trade. The one thing that unifies Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Donald Trump is they both speak disparagingly of past trade agreements. Yeah. Make the case from a progressive standpoint for trade. Okay. Now, this is a place which is a little bit awkward because the, the as far as I'm concerned, the most compelling case for open world markets, not necessarily purist free trade, but very open world markets, is actually um, what it means for poor countries, mm-hmm. not for us. I mean, it, um, the United States can largely shrug off a trade war. Bangladesh, deprive Bangladesh of the ability to export clothing based upon largely on sweatshop labor, but uh, but it's what they got, on, and you are com- basically condemning the country to, to mass starvation. So, so tra- trade is tremendously important, and all of the success stories that we've seen, all of the countries that have gone from poverty to becoming advanced countries, places like South Korea, large parts of China now have done so through selling to world markets, and that's the really important reason not to retreat to a protectionist world. Um, and the argument for the United States is, well, it's there have been benefits to the US. There have also been some people who are hurt, but it's not the major source of disruption. And we can, we if you know, Denmark faces the same tides of globalization that we do, but doesn't have the same levels of, of disruption because they have a really strong social safety net. So we can deal with this. Now, I was against Trans-Pacific Partnership, some of the late Obama initiatives, mm-hmm. um, partly because they weren't really about trade. They were mostly about intellectual property and things which are much less, much more problematic, and partly because I thought that uh, we should not be spending political capital on that. When I wrote an editorial, an, an op-ed uh, saying you know, I was a soft opponent of TPP, uh, I was in a dinner party at Oxford, and it's extremely rude to step out of a dinner party in Oxford to, to take a phone call, unless the phone call happens to be from the President of the United States complaining about what you just wrote. <laughs> I think the age of, we basically have done the, 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 the job. I don't think we, we need more trade agreements at this point. Uh, but I don't want us to see us retreat into a protectionist world either. So in that, in that sense, uh, I'm, not a, a, I'm not an advocate of more trade agreements. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, this kind of, it, the, the worst thing about Trump is not actually even the, the damage that his tariffs do as the loss of credibility, because he's been making a mockery of, of, of the existing agreements. I mean, we, we, under international law and domestic law, we have the right to impose tariffs to protect national security. If you go invoking national security to block imports of aluminum from Canada, yeah, you're 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 saying uh, America. You think the Canadians represent a national security that's right. threat to us? Um, and yet, yeah, you're saying so. America's word is is worthless, and that's a bad thing. Coronavirus. What are the implications 
of it. The president is obviously upset about the notion that it is is going to damage his economy right. in the midst of his reelection. And there clearly are economic, there are humanitarian implications right. that are larger, but there are economic implications as well. Yeah, I mean, we've been waiting for the epidemiologists to figure out how serious this is, and the answer is starting to look very serious. It's highly transmissible, uh, and uh, and and it has a pretty high degree of lethality. So this is a big one. This is this is looking like the the pandemic. Maybe you know, it's not the Black Death, but it might be the influenza uh, epidemic of 1918, which killed maybe 50 million people. So this, uh, you know, hopefully not, but this is this is a big deal. And we have this very integrated global economy. Um, you know, China is more than a quarter of world manufacturing. Almost everything that you buy has some Chinese components. If we're disrupting global trade, uh, that's going to have a big impact. And um, so that's nasty. And the thing I've been saying is, even before coronavirus came along, I'm saying I don't know where the next shock is coming from. Coronavirus may be it, but what I do know is that we don't that our shock absorbers are completely shot. Uh, the Fed doesn't have room to cut interest rates significantly. The European Central Bank has no room to cut interest rates. We could have uh, fiscal policy, maybe, but uh, who's going to be doing that? The the Germans treat economics as a branch of moral philosophy. Um, and the uh, and here, I mean, it's just 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 before we did this this taping, I read that um, Trump administration was suggesting, well, okay, we're maybe willing to spend some money on coronavirus, but we want to get the money by cutting off aid to uh, uh, heating aid to to low income families. So there, we have this complete unwillingness to to take this thing seriously and and do what's required. And, and, if, and if it's a major economic setback and we need an effective economic stimulus, I can hardly think of any people I would trust less to do that than the current team in the White House. As you look down the line here and factoring this in, um, how do you see the American economy functioning over the course of the next year? Well, uh, as Yogi Berra said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. I mean, the uh, um, and short-term economic forecasting is a black art, and nobody's very good at it. I mean, we've actually there are systematic studies. The, uh, the IMF has, the International Monetary Fund has asked how many recessions have economists successfully predicted over the years, and the answer is zero, never. Not once. Um, so God knows. Um, I mean, the U.S. economy appears to have been slowing. Anyway, not dramatically, slowing down to around two percent growth, which is kind of its normal pace of growth. Uh, the 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 oomph that came from the tax cut, which wasn't all that much, seems to be pretty much behind us. And now we have this new headwind, so it's probably slower still. Um, it's hard to see where the upside comes from. There's no there's no obvious new source of of economic uh, growth. Um, so, you know, right now it doesn't look like a recession, but that could change. I mean, this, every day, uh, we're getting new news about just how serious this looks. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, in the process of, of canceling some overseas trips that I was planning to Asia in a couple of months. And there's going to be a lot of people doing things like that. And that's going to be, that's going to be hitting, uh, economies around the world. We talked earlier about your focus on this issue of inequality, and I mentioned the burden that that puts on a democracy if people don't feel an investment in the system working. 
If you could wave a magic wand, how would you reverse that course? And is it possible at this point to stop these trends, reverse them? I mean, what what is your level of optimism about the ability to do that? Oh, the as a technical economic issue, I think we know what to do. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Uh, for some reason, Denmark has become everybody's yes. favorite. Bernie Sanders, but I'm I'm a huge fan of the Danish yeah. model as well. Um, Denmark has much less income inequality than we do. Not none. There are there are Danish billionaires. There are you know they, it's uh, but and how do they do it? Well, they actually work on it from both ends. Um, Sixty uh, percent of Danish workers are unionized. Workers just have a lot more bargaining power in Denmark than they do here. Um, and at the same time, they have substantially higher taxes, which are used to pay for much more generous social programs. And the end result is a vastly less unequal society than ours. And of course, if you believed right-wing dogma that there, there should be grass growing in the streets of Copenhagen, what they actually have is an economy where workers in their prime working years, uh, people in their prime working years are more likely to be employed than they are here, uh, where productivity is exactly the same as it is in the United States, where GDP per capita is a little bit lower than ours, but that's entirely because the Danes actually take vacations. And uh, so it looks pretty good. It looks, and they also, by every measure, they're actually happier on average than we are. So, so Denmark shows that it can be done, that you can have this, all this modern technology and global economy and, and still have a reasonably equal society, a society where people are, uh, everyone is kind of sharing in the benefits of, of the modern economy. Getting there politically in the U.S. is hard. We have all of these resentments and with racial tensions and, uh, um, and, and of course, the, the, the big money uh, campaigns furiously against these kinds of things. But it's not as if there's a mystery about how to do it. Yeah. It may be a challenge as to how to sell it. Well, one thing I would say is you, one thing that's clearly a pretty bad idea is to say, uh, is to call it socialism. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what... I'm, I'm mystified by that, actually, because it's not. I mean, I said yeah, last no. night on television after the debate, it, it baffles me as to why Sanders is so intent on hanging on to the word, because he's not a socialist. Well, the trouble is it's hard for him to say that. Now, I think that was personal branding, uh, a little bit of, uh, look at me, I'm different. And that's fine when you're a senator from a uh, from a, a small state, but when you're running for president, you're just offering ammunition. But it's, so I, I'm, I've been writing that Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. He's a, what the Europeans call a social democrat, and that's fine. I don't actually have a substantive problem with yeah. his general I position. thought your tweet the other day was right on point, which is the most important thing is he's, he believes in democracy. Yeah, he, he, he's a... He's a decent human being, actually, which also matters. Yes. <laughs> That's a big deal. In these, but he believes in democracy. And, and the trouble is, uh, look, I'm going to be – people say this sounds extreme, but it isn't. The, the current Republican Party is an authoritarian regime in waiting. And, um, and any Democrat would be a bulwark against that. People, in fact, vote on lots of issues. But that should be the only thing that matters when the general election comes. Who is actually going to stand up for democracy? Yeah. 
Paul Krugman, it's great to have you here. Many people will have read your columns, but to read them organized this way uh, by topic is really fascinating. And uh, arguing with zombies, economics, politics, and the fight for a better future is uh, something everybody should grab. I agree. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.